and welcome to Responsa Radio, where you ask and we answer questions of Jewish law in modern times. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip, here with Rabbi Ethan Tucker, Rosh Yeshiva at Hadar, a center for higher Jewish learning based in New York City. I'm excited about this question today. I'm going to uh, put it in a category that is our usual can you on Shabbat category, but this one we will call Shabbat and leisure. Okay. <laughs> it's going to be about attending performances. Is that part of your life? Have you seen any good shows recently? Well, I was actually, I had a guilty pleasure of I was on a business trip to Chicago and I realized that Hamilton plays in Chicago. No, making and good I use woke, of time. <laughs> and I woke up in the morning and I was like, I have free time tonight. Is there any chance that there's a ticket? And I scored a $72 ticket. <laughs> That was great. Um, for New, for the New York Hamilton standards, that's basically a, a giveaway price. Yeah, <laughs> practically they paid me. Exactly. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Well, that sets the bar pretty high in terms of performances, <laughs> I got to say. We'll be curious to know whether the quality of the performance will weigh in on the answer to this question here. The questioner writes, may I attend a performance, such as a theater performance, that starts while it is still Shabbat, if I buy the tickets before Shabbat and walk to the venue. Does it matter if I can assume the performers are not Jewish? Is this any different from the common practice of Shabbat-observant people I know to attend free museums on Shabbat? So this is, yeah, a question of how... I almost feel like I could call this when Shabbat is also Saturday afternoon... (laughs) Can you use it as a time to explore and take advantage of the kind of leisure opportunities that are in our world for those for whom it is just a Saturday? Can we go to that show? Can we go to that museum? Yeah. Maybe we'll end back up here, but I guess just the name at the beginning. It does feel like this is one of those questions where the why behind it feels a little important to me, which is to say, why is the person asking? What either hole is being filled or what challenge do they have? Who are they in relationship with? And not that those are going to make or break the question, which I think still is going to be sort of Shabbat and the laws of Shabbat centered. But I think it's important to kind of get to that. So we don't seem to have that in the question here, but Mm -hmm. maybe we'll speculate a little on that and how it might be relevant. Yeah, I'll be very curious to hear how it's relevant. Yeah. All right. So let's jump in. Let's start a couple different pieces here we should break apart. The first I would almost rephrase as, is it permissible to pay for services or items given on Shabbat prior to Shabbat or after it? Or is that some kind of illegal transaction because you're paying for a thing that is happening on Shabbat? So we dealt with this a little bit in an earlier podcast, like around babysitting or something like that, I think, and Mm -hmm. working on Shabbat and can you pay a babysitter beforehand, et cetera, et cetera. And essentially, like, if the person is not Jewish and they're not doing any kind of real milacha for you, like in the case of babysitting, that kind of opens up the basic flexibility of saying, well, you're not necessarily really paying them for something, etc. that they're like doing on Shabbat, on Shabbat. But you are, I think, more directly here in the question of a performance before we get to the type of performance, you know, a ticket is a different kind of thing, right? A ticket to a venue or to a performance is not sort of 
fee for service, you do X for me and I will pay you. It is actually, right, it's an admission fee, as it were. It's essentially something you pay in order to be let in. (laughs) <laughs> and then the thing that's happening happens. And that does feel different. I think the uh, right the questioner here already notes what is indeed uh, a reasonably widespread practice for Shabbat observant people to say, oh, that gallery is free. It has no admission fee. So, of course, I can walk in there. And in fact, even more than that, Shmirat Shabbat Ki Hilchata, which is a contemporary Israeli work of practical halacha observance, explicitly says, You're allowed to buy a ticket to a zoo before Shabbat starts Mm -hmm. so that you can visit the zoo the next afternoon on Shabbat. And that means you bring the ticket with you. Yeah, you would bring the ticket. So you have to assume, you know, there's an Eruv or there's some other way that you don't have to carry it. But whatever it is, basically, you've paid to get access to something which you arranged before Shabbat. And then you just show up and you're getting access to that thing. And, you know, think about being there's like a, you know, a park near my house uh, that has an admission fee. Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine you like, yeah, you join as a member, right, for the right. year. And then you show your membership card on Shabbat. So, of course, that's OK to do. And the one time ticket is just a more localized version of that. And that's why that's permitted. It actually comes out of an interesting earlier case, the Nodabi Huda who is in 18th century, with someone dealing with actually paying a fee to a mikvah in advance of Shabbat, where, you know, the mikvah needs fees in order to be supported, and that's no less true for people who need to use the mikvah on Shabbat, but are they violating something, right, by paying for use on Shabbat? The Nodabi Yuda says, no, like, you're just being allowed in to use the mikvah, which is just there, and you're making an arrangement beforehand to make sure you're supporting it appropriately. It's interesting. We live in a world that is now so saturated with the idea of credit and online payment that it almost feels silly to think that you would actually pay at the door to get into a show. Obviously, you got your ticket in advance. You know, you ordered it online. And in a sense, actually, that's what a ticket is is that you paid in advance, and this is basically a receipt that shows that you paid in advance, which is what's allowing you in. But it sounds like the concept, I guess we're starting with the question of payment as a transaction, and then we'll get to the question of what's happening in the show. Yeah, what's happening does that matter? Yeah, but I'd say threshold one, which we can very easily cross, is just as, right, it's hard to imagine why you would forbid someone with an annual membership to Mm -hmm. a place from going in, actually... Being allowed in for Shabbat is almost just like you're shrinking down the annual membership to, you know, a day, but which you have secured beforehand. (laughs) And so that's no real obstacle, the sort of prepayment to get access to, let's just start with, let's say, something static, right? Mm -hmm. It's grounds, it's art hanging on a wall, it's anything like that. So now I think let's turn to the question of, okay, performance, and something that has something more dynamic and where there's people who are working right, right in some right. way. Although, truthfully, there's people who work at the zoo as well. That's correct. So you're not paying those people's salaries if we've already established. And so that doesn't seem like that's the issue. And there are many performances that I would say by dint of the nature of them not involving any malacha or any problematic activity vis-a-vis what an observant Jew themselves might do on Shabbat is no different than going to an art gallery, right? Mm-hmm. If you were going into an a cappella concert, 
Well, you might sing in an a cappella concert on right. Shabbat. Right. Um, anything that basically you would say, I as a Shabbat observant person would do that very thing that is going on here. The fact of it being classed as a performance also doesn't create any mm-hmm. kind of issue. So I think where it's going to become interesting is mainly going to be around performance that involves music, amplification, mm-hmm. even if it's a, you know, uh, a play, what if it's, you know, there's music accompanying it or it's a musical. And then of course things like movies and other things that are, you know, potentially not involving live actors but involving the use of projection, light, heat, electricity, etc. that you would say, well, I would never do this on my right. own. Can I go and attend it? Right, and it feels a little bit different to the culture of Shabbat, I would say. In addition to questions of are the actual activities malacha, are they actual prohibitions on Shabbat? So I'll be curious to hear how those two either come together or if you think of them separately. So that's exactly actually how I want to break it down. I think you've really hit it, which is let's first think about what's the nature of the activity in terms of sort of the physical significance of what's going on. And let's also think about the question of the appropriateness. Mm -hmm. So let me throw out a couple precedents and we can try to break them down and see what we make of them. So one is an interesting source from medieval Germany. The Ravya, Rabbi Eliezer ben Yoel Halevi, which is part of the larger discussion of musical instruments on Shabbat and Yom Tov. The Ravya says, you are allowed to schedule a wedding on Friday afternoon, mm-hmm. have the meal that follows the wedding essentially be Friday night dinner, mm-hmm. and hire a non-Jewish band. Wow. I, I feel like I've heard that that schedule of the Friday afternoon wedding is is common in Israel. I've never actually been to a Friday afternoon wedding that goes into a Shabbos dinner. So, yeah, I think it's it's certainly not common in Israel today, at least in religious quarters, the way the Rav Yah is, is describing, describing it. But it was pretty common, actually, in the Middle Ages. If you think about it practically, you would kind of save some money. Right. Which yeah. is to say, you, instead of having oh, I have my Shabbat meal and my wedding meal, I double yeah, it I up. I completely see the practicality, especially if Friday is your weekend day. Right. <laughs> exactly. But the band is the curious part. Here. Mm-hmm. Now, the Rav Yah explicitly says the way he plays it out is he says, look, the prohibition on playing musical instruments is itself basically a rabbinic level prohibition. It's not really a milacha to pluck strings on something or blow into a wind instrument. It's understood to be something that is not appropriate on Shabbat, but basically at a rabbinic level. And you're allowed to ask a Gentile to do a rabbinic violation of Shabbat for the purposes of a mitzvah. Mm -hmm. And he says the mitzvah here is, you know, l'sameach chatan v'chalah, to make the bride and groom rejoice. And therefore, it's okay to ask them to be the band. Okay? So the striking thing about that is, of course, the Rav Yad does not seem to be bothered, at least in the context of the mitzvah, does not seem to be bothered at all by the atmospherics of hearing live music. Right? right. In other words, even though you would not play the live the music yourself, the hearing the music by someone who's not right. themselves forbidden from doing it is no problem. 
Right. So okay. uh, the volume, the ethos, the dancing, none of that is a problem. Right. So there's kind of two different ways you can branch out from that ravya. One is to say, oh, so I guess the atmospherics of listening to music are not a problem at all. Right. The only reason you need to ask a Gentile to do it is because the act of playing the instrument is a problem. So that's the thing that has to be gotten around. And that's the thing you only allow when a mitzvah is on the line is instructing someone not Jewish to do something for you. But if they were doing it on their own, right, and had no problem with it, then it's fine. Right. Meaning there's a little concert in the park and I happen to walk past on my way to shul and I stop and I listen to the concert. No problem. Correct. There's a reading of the Ravya that would say that's no problem at all. All right. That seems to me actually the better reading of the Ravya, if you ask me, just in terms of kind of analyzing his, his text and his logic inside. But there is another way of reading it, which is, no, the mitzvah element of the wedding here is important not just for enabling asking the Gentile to play, mm -hmm. right, hiring the non-Jewish band. It's also important for kind of overriding the atmospheric concern. And Mahari Weil, who is a later German authority just a short time after the Rav, yeah, he takes that reading and he actually gives us an amazing window into, how shall we put it, Shabbat and leisure in medieval Germany in Jewish communities, where it seems people had some of the same challenges that people have today of figuring out how to spend their afternoon. Mm -hmm. So listen to what Mahari Weil says. He's actually not talking about Shabbat. He's talking about Yom Tov, but it would apply all the more so to okay. Shabbat. He says, you know those people who hold big dances on Yom Tov afternoon and the non-Jewish bands play for them with musical <laughs> wow. instruments. I don't know where they came up with permitting this because all the earlier authorities like Rav Yah, who permitted having non-Jewish bands, only allowed that in the context of a marriage. And implied in that permission is that unless it's a marriage, of course you're not allowed to do it. And he ends by saying, always this sort of poignant rabbinic line, and if I had the power, I would put an end to it. Yeah. So he doesn't if have only. the power, <laughs> and apparently he doesn't put an end to it. But you see there, there's a kind of feeling of, I don't care that you're not doing this, right? And it's non-Jews playing. This is not a wedding. And this should not be happening. Now, truth be told, the Maori Vial here is also not clear. Is he bothered by the fact that this is a case where perhaps the non-Jewish uh, band players are being told to play? Right. In other words, actually what he's bothered by is they're setting this up and instructing them and telling them even though it's not a wedding. Or is the Maori Vial, when he says, I would end this, bothered by Jews spending their Yom Tov afternoon dancing to music. Mm -hmm. Okay? Yeah. And that's where you start to get to if we just jump to the contemporary modern question. So am I allowed, for instance, to just 
Leave my television on for all of Shabbat. Leave my radio on for all of Shabbat. Put it on a timer at a certain point. That will a little bit hinge on how you read these earlier sources. Because there, you're not telling anyone to do anything on Shabbat. There's no one who's not Jewish who's doing something for you. You've set it up all beforehand, okay? And at that point, the question is, is the very atmosphere of it problematic? Well, I think there's something even deeper than is the atmosphere problematic, which is actually very surprising to me because I think it's not what you typically think of as important in making a halakhic decision is exactly where we started of why do you want to do the thing? Why is that music playing? It's for a wedding. And that actually making a difference. I feel like in my own personal conversations with people who don't share my halachic practice, there is sometimes a feeling of, if I could convince you that there's a good reason to do this other thing, mm-hmm. then it would change, right? If there's a good reason to eat the non-kosher food, then it's okay to eat the non-kosher food and having to say, that's not actually how halacha works. And it sounds actually in this instance like it almost is how halacha works to say, is there a mitzvah behind it? I'm struck in particular that the text is about weddings because I have to say when we first read this question and I start to think in my mind, when have I tried to play this game of, well, if I can walk there, if I can get in in advance, um, has been times when I've been attending weddings of non-Jewish friends mm-hmm. that started before af- you know, before Shabbat was completely out and thought to myself, well, if I can stay at a close enough place and I can walk over. Right. Um, and so, it, you know, it's actually very compelling to me to hear that reflected back as, yeah, when somebody's getting married, it's a value to be there and celebrate in a different way. And maybe that is going to also impact your TV question, right, to say, Is your TV on because you get bored? Is your TV on because there's a war going on and you feel that you need to hear the news because there is a storm happening and you need to hear a flood warning? Um, You know, why? Why are you doing these leisure activities? Do they have some other greater purpose? That's really striking to me. Yeah, yeah. No, so that the mitzvah language there and, of course, like, yeah, how elastic is that and what do we apply it to, we could we could play out. But the notion that there's a category there potentially to interact with is part of that legacy. And, again, I think to just say again that ravya can be split, right, in a mm-hmm. number of different directions where it's either just focused on, oh, there was a problematic action, or it's also engaging implicitly with that atmospheric piece. I have a question, which is, is there in modern times a halachically observant community that will hire musicians to come in and play on Yom Tov? Does that happen? Yeah, I think that's pretty much dead as far as I know, even though that ruling of the Rav Yah is cited in the Shulchan Aruch. Okay, one of the most controversial applications of it was some of the early proponents of religious reform in synagogues in Europe wanted to say, well, if a wedding is a dvar mitzvah, then surely praying to God in the synagogue is a mitzvah. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I can hire a non-Jewish organist yeah, it's to play compelling, I gotta say. <laughs> Right. I mean, this was actually some of the early waves of reform were still very focused on 
wanting to justify things, you know, in certain oh, uh, precedents, you know, from the Shulchan Aruch, even if, you know, they maybe would play a little fast and loose with some of the some of the edges of it. That first wave did care about that in a significant way. And that was one of the places. And that's where, yeah, the backlash against that position ended up ultimately Turn, being one. Turns out he had his dream. The practice is gone. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Mahari Vial, right, would have, would have been happier. But yeah, there's some aftermath of that. The other place where it comes up is, yeah, there are discussions about, let's say, poskim who are more lenient with the use of electricity on Yom Tov, something we've talked about in a previous podcast also. You have Rav Masas, who is prominent Svaradi posik in the contemporary period, who basically justified the use of a radio on Yom Tov, all right, mm-hmm. use of a record player and these different things. Later authorities, Rav Ovadi Yosef, go crazy. How could you allow that? You know, that's unacceptable. But his logic is some version of, after he deals with the electricity piece, is just sort of like, yeah, it gives people pleasure on Yom Tov, and there's nothing really wrong with it. And it's very clear he is sort of following the thread that can come out of the ravya of there's no problem on the atmospherics front with the music. Mm-hmm. The only problem is, is someone doing something forbidden on this day that they shouldn't be? And what's the response from Ravavaja? Good. What's, so the response, what's his pushback? Yeah, the response from, well, I'll say that the surface response from Ravavaja is, no, you're not taking seriously enough the, you know, action of turning on the phonograph or mm-hmm. the radio and those are like forbidden actions by Jews yeah. which doesn't really address the question of something being on a timer or going into someone else's house, right can i go into my non-jewish neighbor's house and watch the movie that they're watching anyway right, right. i'm doing nothing right. so that other poskim that other poskim will you know to the extent they don't like it will essentially engage the atmospheric thing directly. I'll come back to a version of that in a minute. Though sometimes another factor that will be brought up if it's in your own home is, oh, people will think you turned it on. Or people will hear noises and assume all kinds of Shabbat violation is happening. But none of that really applies to, let's say, a performance venue, right, or places that are not in your domain. Right. It makes me think a little bit of... When we lived in Boston and we used to walk home from Shul on Friday evening and my husband would be peeking into the sports bars to see if he could see the score of the games um, on somebody else's TV that was on for some other reason was like, you know, there's a way to access this information. Yeah. See a little of that quote unquote show. That's right. Okay, let me give you another precedent here, which is relevant and interesting. So... The Talmud in one place gets into kind of a discussion of whether doing certain kinds of almost mock melacha is a problem, like sort of rehearsing or training for something. Like if Mm -hmm. I take a hammer and I, you know, sort of wield it and strike it towards an anvil, but I'm not actually hammering something out, like what's the sort of propriety of that on Shabbat? We won't get into the details of that. But it culminates in a really interesting formulation by the Mishnah Brura, a modern posseik and major authority on the laws of Shabbat, who actually says, you are allowed to watch someone else do melacha on Shabbat in order to learn a skill. Hmm. Okay? And go to class. Something like that. Okay. But with a caveat. And here's this important thing. 
it has to be an unplanned opportunity and you are totally passive and you're in no way interacting with the person who's doing it. So it really is I'm walking through the park and I see a juggler. I can take some mental notes on the juggling technique. Great. But the juggler is not really even doing the lacha. It would be right. a glass blower. Got it. You see someone doing an outdoor glass demonstration. You're like, ooh, I would really like to see that. Now, the Mishnah Barua basically on the one hand is I would say saying, well, you're not doing anything. You're just walking by. It's okay to like take information into your brain on Shabbat. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand is sort of nervous. I don't want you to get too close. And I'll be like, here, do you want to try? And next thing you know, you're potentially stepping into that. <coughs> I like about this the, um, the sort of insistence of Shabbat is not a time to pretend that malacha doesn't exist. It's just a time not to do it. Yeah. At you least, know, I'm not going to plant in my garden, but it doesn't mean I can't watch somebody else garden as I walk past their house and think to myself, oh, interesting. She puts her tomatoes further apart than I would have put mine. Right. Right. And there are some views that even are a little more lenient than the Mishnah Bura and will say, well, if you're really doing this to learn a trade and particularly maybe it's a life-saving trade or it's going to mm -hmm. really give, you know, basic livelihood to your family. Rav Yaakov Breisch, who is from Switzerland in the 20th century, engages this around the question of an observant medical student. Mm -hmm. And even if they can't operate, you know, do stuff on the cadaver on Shabbat, can they show up? and right. watch other people do it and pay attention, he's, he's much more lenient, both because of his value of the medical profession, but also his notion that this is sort of to have a career to be able to support one's family. That's a little different from, let's say, oh, that's cool. I've always wanted to know how to blow glass, right? Yes. Like, do that on a Sunday. So again, it's a really interesting case of the reason why you want to watch the show actually matters. Yeah. So I think by those standards, even the more lenient ones the more there's some kind of, you know, intensive milacha that's going on, unless you are really detached from it, right, the more potentially problematic that is, which is to say, yeah, something like a movie where there's not really any milacha happening. I mean, there's the screening of it, right? But the movie itself is sort of images might be very different than going to a glass blowing demonstration, mm -hmm. right? Where there's really a thing that's being done that's a malacha itself, though the distance between you and the person up on the stage sort of might also matter, as the Mishnah Burah kind of talks about, like, how engaged are you in this, as opposed to, I'm in seat G35, <laughs> you right. know, completely separate Whereas from the Whereas being a whole passive thing. observer in this case makes it more acceptable going to an actual workshop on nail hammering, even though you don't hold the hammer, less okay. Correct. That seems that seems like part of what's happening there. So that's another precedent where I think you can see it being, you know, pulled a little this way, a little that way, depending on how you're thinking of it. But it also opens up this question of being present on Shabbat for activities that are not being done for you but that potentially kind of engage you around around milacha. Okay, let me say one more thing now about the atmospheric stuff, and then right. we'll see if we can pull it together. So the other angle here goes to what kind of content and experiences are appropriate for the atmospherics of Shabbat. 
And here there's a debate we may have also talked about at some point earlier between Rambam, Maimonides, and Rashba in terms of engaging secular subjects and secular literature on Shabbat. The Rambam says, on Shabbat, you study Torah, and that's it. Interesting, man of letters, engaged deeply in philosophy and science, but he felt that's for the other six days of the week, and Shabbat is focused on sort of the sacred. The Rashba disagreed with that and said, no, what do you mean business is inappropriate on Shabbat? You shouldn't be sort of like looking at the stock market pages. But, you know, reading about science and medicine, he talked about using an astrolabe and, you know, other tools of that mm -hmm. sort. That's okay. That's okay on Shabbat. So that's another factor here, right? Like from the perspective of the content. So sure, a play, some notion of culture, et cetera. I think the Rashba would say, yeah, that's all right. That feels like it can be all right on yeah, Shabbat. Yeah, that sounds actually like a great definition of leisure. It's the non-Torah stuff that's not your work. Right. That's what you're reading for leisure. <laughs> right. And the Rambam, no matter how highbrow it was, would not be okay with it. Right. Right. Would right. say that's not appropriate for Shabbat. And the Rosh by himself, I think, would say anything that feels like it starts to pull you away from, you know, the sort of contemplative space and it's really about like either direct engagement with melacha or you know something else that just right. feels like it's wildly inappropriate for the sanctity of shabbat that already feels like it's it's in a different place yeah i haven't heard you say i think the thing that would most make me pause before choosing to go see a show like this which is that if you take yourself out of a Shabbat context, you may forget that it's Shabbos. You know, I could imagine, like, reaching for my phone or even maybe, you know, reaching for somebody else's, you know, here, could you take a picture of us? And not being thoughtful about that once I'm stepping out of what would be my normal Shabbos context in a way that I would almost say if every Shabbos afternoon I go walk around the Met, then maybe that wouldn't come up. Yeah. No, I remember actually seeing someone on Shabbat afternoon. I was in a context like that with them and they suddenly like bummed a cigarette off of someone else and started smoking it. I was like, what What are you doing? And they hadn't realized. <laughs> they had just forgotten. Yeah. Right. And so it's exactly right. what you're saying. And, you know, where that comes up in halacha sort of most directly is the notion of big day Shabbat. The idea that you're supposed to dress differently mm -hmm. on Shabbat is very much consciously tied into, among other things, not just honoring the day. But if you dress like you do the rest of the week. You may act like you do the rest of the week and totally forget right. because Shabbat at the end of the day is a total construct, right? right? That is to say, unlike, let's say, the first night of Pesach where you can look up and see that there's a full moon, you actually cannot on Shabbat ever tell that the world is different in any way right. from Friday and Sunday. It's all about the way in which you create that environment. Yeah, yeah I love it. I love the image. Um, you know, next Shabbos, you can find me at Wrigley Field, but don't worry. I'll be wearing my heels, <laughs> um, my Shabbos, my Shabbos shoes. So it'll be uh, it'll be clear. Yeah. And having something as we come to a summary here of some guidance, having something that you do differently you know, in an environment that you might be in during the week, uh, but that you're in on Shabbat does feel like it is appropriate and important 
uh, if you're going to keep those guidelines. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's try to sort of, I think, yeah, sum up Yeah, where here. does that leave us? I want to give... I'm clear that we can um, go to ancient parties if it's a wedding <laughs> and I sit very far back in the theater or something like that. Medieval, right? medieval. <laughs> yeah, right, okay, uh, medieval. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so let's try to, I think, sum this up and then I want to offer one concluding thought about how one manages this in a religious life. So... Yeah, I think we've sort of said the admission fee if paid in advance, that's not the issue here, okay? There's an appropriate approach channeling some version of the Rambam's only learning Torah and some of the tighter readings of the Mahari vial that we mentioned earlier. That's just like, yeah, don't, don't do that stuff on Shabbat, right? Don't go there. Create a day that's different. Don't piggyback on some free stuff that's coming along. Okay, you walk by it in the park. You can stop for a minute. But don't plan attendance at a venue with something that's going on that's just not about Shabbat. That's okay. I think we get that. I think we've also seen you can pretty solidly ground pre-purchasing a ticket to something where the event Uh, that's going on, even with performers, is something where the performers themselves are not doing anything you wouldn't do, right? right? That's pretty easy. And as long as you're not adopting the Rambam's hardcore reading of only do Torah, um, sort of Rashba-appropriate performances, if you will, are potentially totally fine. Now, when we start getting into things that are either, you know, movies and TV, the projection of sound, or the actual playing of musical instruments, or the actual performance of malacha, that's where it feels like a combination of it not being a weekly practice, it being something that you have some clear distance from, and it not being in an environment, particularly, let's say, with like, you know, TV, radio, etc., that might give the impression that, oh, this is a Jewish space where melacha happens, but you are kind of, you're on someone else's turf, or, you know, everyone maybe already knows that certain things go on a timer, or we didn't get into this, but just to throw out another thing, it's like you have your earbuds plugged into something for the entire Shabbat that no one else can hear, and it goes on a timer, and then you listen to them, right, or something like that. Okay, those are cases where I think you can imagine saying, here's how I could justify that being a case of, I didn't do any malacha. I didn't ask anyone to do malacha. This is happening whether I show up or don't. Right. And I've taken care of all the logistics so that I can be present. Now, to me, what's important about actually laying out, and this is the sort of comment I want to end with, like laying out the extremes of just don't ever go to anything or here's how you could justify, mm-hmm. you know, as long as you're sort of detached, is it then I think it pushes you back into the question of the why are you asking right. that we started with. And this feels very important to me. Here I'm almost taking my, like, more focused halachic hat off and putting on kind of religious perspective hat. And that is you have to, I think, certainly some people do, Think about how these different modes kind of interact, uh, sometimes with different chapters of one's life. So speaking, I'd say both to some degree personally, but also what I feel like I see in a lot of people, there are periods in life where it actually feels like the most important thing is that I have like 
total consistency, total atmosphere construction, total like I am building a life that looks this way. Right. A lot of people feel that when they're raising their children. A lot of people feel that when they are themselves kids coming to be like, I want a rhythm that like defines who I am. And that's that's often a whole significant chapter of life. I think for many people, there are also chapters of life, and I would say young adulthood is often one of these, where you're trying to figure out, can I wear this garment called observance in the world and feel like I'm comfortable in its skin? And for some people, only having lines and clarity and full atmosphere control is helpful in that regard. For other people, the feeling of, yeah, my being Shabbat observant does not totally cut me off from the a cappella concert. Yeah. Is actually in the long term a huge investment in them being able to say, this is awesome. I'm an observant person. Right. It doesn't make me have to swear off the world. And I'm more committed as a result. Yeah. I think that can be true for people also with. You know, you used the phrase earlier of the question of how to fill your afternoon is not a new one. I think there are life stages where the question of how to fill a long summer Shabbat afternoon becomes something that's much bigger than just, okay, so you're bored, read a book, becomes something more important about I need to be able to find the people that I want to be around and do what they're doing at that time or, you know, having a a screen or a podcast come on a timer maybe allows you to stay within the realm of Shabbat observance without it becoming painful in some ways. And I think that's probably also a life stage question in different moments, even more so than different weeks. Yeah. And I think the balance is, you know, the right mix of sort of halachically appropriate, you know, passive entertainment, as we've talked about, can be life-giving to certain people at certain times of like, yeah, I can I can hold this observance. This is working. It can threaten to be also a sort of like running away from or avoiding Shabbat, mm-hmm. right? Particularly on some of those long afternoons. Look, for some people, taking a nap is actually about really caring for their body. For some people, a nap on Shabbat afternoon is also avoiding Shabbat, mm-hmm. right? It's like, I don't know what to do. I guess I'm tired. Pass a couple hours. I can kill three hours yeah. with this nap. And that's not necessarily a great spiritual place to be in either. And so I think part of the why I would come back to is I would love for the person asking this question to think about in a deep way how are the ways in which I'm navigating this Shabbat space leading in the long arc of my life to actually being more spiritually alive, present, engaged by Shabbat, as opposed to it's a problem I need to manage or an obstacle to avoid. Yeah, so we're leaving people with a lot to think about and take in um, as they decide to purchase or not purchase that ticket to that show tonight. Responsor Radio is a project of the Hadar Institute and Jewish Public Media. Thanks to Analia Bernstein-Simpson for producing this podcast and to Noah Gendler for editing this episode. When it comes to dancing, I just can't move. They call me the top cat.